This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy, our first new episode of 2020 of the new decade. And uh, we are so fortunate this morning. Uh, We are discussing Congress and war powers, uh, an issue that's uh, been in uh, the news really for 240 years in American history, uh, and an issue that's certainly at the center of American attention today. And we have with us uh, probably the person who's studying these issues most deeply as a historian, uh, Clay Katsky. Clay, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to have you on with us. Uh, Clay is finishing his PhD here at the University of Texas, and he's writing his dissertation on Congress's role in uh, managing and dealing with presidential war powers, uh, particularly in the 1970s and 80s. And so we're we're so fortunate to have him here. Uh, He knows more about this subject than anyone else. He's also a fantastic teacher. And uh, so we're, we're delighted to have you here, Clay. Before we turn to our discussion with our expert, with Clay, uh, we have our scene-setting poem. I haven't had a chance to say that in a, in a little while. Our scene-setting poem with uh, Zachary Siri. What's the title of your poem today? An adaptation of Allen Ginsberg's A Supermarket in California for a Nation on the Brink of War. My gosh. So you've taken an Allen Ginsberg, who I know is one of your favorite poets, and you have um, adapted one of his poems for our discussion today. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so we have the merger of Zachary Suri and Allen Ginsberg. Let's hear it. What thoughts I find of you these days, Frank Church, for we huddled in the bedrooms listening to our radios with a headache, self-conscious looking at the end of the world. In our nightmarish haze and shopping for semblances, we all crawled into the neon fruit supermarket with you, dreaming of the broken ghost. What nuclear bombs and what assassinations, whole battalions shopping at night, Aisles full of shell-shocked soldiers, ghostly Donald Rumsfeld in the avocados, Reagan in the tomatoes, and you, Lyndon Johnson, what were you doing down by the hot dog buns? I saw you, Uncle Sam, disheveled, lonely old optimist, fumbling with the paper towel rolls and eyeing the peanut butter with a blank stare. I heard you asking questions of each, whom did I really kill today? What price for world peace? Are you James Madison? I wandered in and out of the brilliant star-spangled stacks of cans following you, and followed in my imagination by the ghost of Montesquieu and Lafayette. We strolled down the open corridors together in our solitary remembrance, tasting empire, possessing every forbidden delicacy, and never passing the eye of the cashier's congressional oversight. Where are we going, you lost Democrat? The doors close in an hour. Which way do your reluctant guns point tonight? Maybe in some future time I will touch the founding document in my pocket and dream of our odyssey in the supermarket and feel absurd. Will we walk through a war among the distant highways and software engineers? The trees add shame to shame, lights out in the houses, awaiting air raid signals that still seem so inevitable. Will we stroll dreaming of the lost democracy we left in a pickle jar behind the old folks' home, back to our silent cottage, maybe Lincoln's mausoleum? Ah, dear father, tip your hat, lonely old vagrant. You can lose the false individualism with me. For what America did we truly have when we handed Sharon the coin and we got out on a sinking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of the Potomac? Wow. Nice. I, I love I love the imagery there, Zachary. Uh, so why did you choose this Ginsburg poem, poet and, poem, and why did you uh, adapt it in the way you did? 
Well, um, this poem, uh, Supermarket in California, which was written in 1955, in it, Ginsburg uh, chases Walt Whitman through a, a supermarket, and he's really critiquing how materialism and uh, commercialism has undermined democracy in, in, his, in his view, and I am critiquing the ways that imperialism and war has undermined democracy in the U.S. today, and I think Though they seem very far apart, I think both moments are very similar in the sort of aching for a more perfect union. Wow. I think that's a perfect spot to turn to, to Clay. Um, this is something the founders thought about, right? About the, the question of how you can maintain a democracy and still fight wars when necessary for the national defense. Yes. How did the framers think about this? Well, in terms of the, the, what the framers were looking for in, uh, uh, in war making, the, uh, they were looking for uh, somewhat of a shared power between the president and Congress. Um, um, this and in fact, this this was a major breakthrough at the time. In order to share power with the presidency, or um, was a huge break from when monarchs uh, controlled all aspects of right. war. The framers didn't want to give the president uh, authority to go to war uni- unilaterally. Right, and so they gave Congress particular powers. What are the what are the con- constitutional powers that Congress has? So the main the main power that Congress has, uh, granted by Article One, Section Eight, uh, Clause Eleven, is that Congress shall have the power to declare war. And uh, we've seen over time this sort of power can be useful, but can has has eroded. Um, the, uh, the declared wars include War of eighteen twelve, Mexican American War, Spanish American War, World War One, and World War Two, but. Korea starts this trend of undeclared wars. Um, uh, so the, so the, the power to declare war has somewhat diminished over time. Um, there are other powers, though, important powers that, the, that Congress has to uh, it, in um, the rest of that clause talks about the uh, to raise and support armies. Uh, it's interesting. It says to raise and support armies, but it also says, but no appropriation of money uh, to that use shall be for longer a period than two years. So already Congress in the Constitution, um, you have Congress trying to limit or you have the framers trying to limit the president's ability to have long drawn out conflicts, right. even limit Congress's ability at that point. Right. Forcing a vote at least every two years on the money for the conflict. Yes. Right? To revisit the issue. And so that we're not just stuck in endless wars. Wow. Um, the th- the third um, important power in that section is to provide and maintain a navy, which obviously has been extended to the air force and right. maybe in the future to a space force or something like that. Um, and then the the final important power is is uh, to, to in that clause is to make rules for government reg- and regulation of the land and na- naval forces. So to some extent, Congress does have control over the naval and land forces. Uh, making rules, making laws governing uh, um, their conduct and such. Um, the final thing also that's not exactly related, but um, does is a part of the Congress's uh, war powers in the uh, Constitution is the Senate's ability to re- approve and reject international agreements. Right, right, right. And it's actually a two-thirds vote, isn't it? Yes. And th- so this is a high, this is a high bar. Um, and th- this is, and because of a high, this has caused issues may, that we could even see recently, something like the Iran deal, which wasn't given to Congress because the the bar couldn't be couldn't be right. met. So here's an instant 
an instance of the president going around Congress um, um, in a way that it, because Congress wasn't going to be able to give the president what he needed. Right. And that's an example of the power that the president has over Congress. Right. And, and I, I, I think it's fair to say, right, that from the beginning, from Washington's time, there was already tension, right? Yes. That presidents have a tendency to want to have more of a free hand, particularly Absolutely. when it comes to military affairs. How has that story evolved over time? Well, you know, really what you see is you see presidents uh, uh, slowly taking liberties over time with Congress. As you mentioned, starting with Washington, um, um, you know, there are issues with England and, and there's pressure to go to war. And Washington is able to sway Congress uh, uh, in his direction not to go to war uh, by sending diplomatic uh, uh, people out to talk to, to diplomats in England. Um, so he's sort of so Congress at that point is pushing for war and he's sort of pulling them back. Right. But he's showing his his teeth. He's showing that he can do this. In fact, um uh, the House requests uh, uh, documents related to these negotiations, and he refuses based on executive privilege, which is the first instance of executive privilege being used. You know, going forward, um, uh, you know, um, you have uh, Thomas Jefferson um, uh, um, imposing embargo acts and right. um, doing things that Congress was not completely on board with, but was within the president's power Um the I'd say the first real instance of the president overstepping his bounds in the war making uh, really comes during the Mexican-American War with with James Polk. Um, <clears throat> Polk, there is not enough uh, support in Congress for war and Polk sends troops down to the border of Mexico intending to incite a war and intending for Congress to jump on board with that war. Uh, one of the things that we see over and over again is that it's very difficult for Congress to pull back once hostilities have been engaged. Right. And, you know, we know that it's very difficult. I mean, Congress has control of appropriations, but it's very difficult to cut off funds for troops right. in the field. Right. Um, so and and this continues to unfold as as each war comes, as the the country becomes more involved with the out with the outside world, you know, following um, the Spanish-American War and um, territorial conquest, um, uh, the are our, our butting up against uh, outside powers means that the president uh, is gaining power in in this sort right. of arena. The president has what, what some would call an agenda-setting power, right? Mm -hmm. He can send American forces, he can do something, and then, in a sense, almost uh, threaten uh, Congress that if they don't support that, that they'll be abandoning American forces yeah. overseas, right? And so he really gets the first move, in a sense. Why have presidents been able to do this more effectively? And why, as you already said earlier on, Clay, ha have Congress's day-to-day -day powers over the military and over military and war decisions, why have they diminished so precipitously in the 20th century and early 21st century? Well, uh, for one, you know, you, you look at the the threat of national security in the Cold War, coming from the Cold War. The uh, threat of national security has been used by the executive um, to uh, push an, an, the idea that only the president can can uh, protect the nation. There is some concern that a body like Congress, that has endless debates and an endless number of ideas, cannot come together quickly enough in order to protect the country in a proper way. Um, a lot of people would say that uh, too many voices are being heard and that you need a single person to make a decision. Um uh, that said, there's that in the that said in the 20th century, Congress has um, 
not necessarily used all of its powers to its best advantage. So I'd say one of the things that is not directly talked about in the Constitution, but is a is a constitutional power that Congress has that relates to war, is the uh, is their investigatory powers and their powers of oversight. Yes, yes, yes. And so, uh, how do those powers work? What power does that give Congress? So um, it says in the Constitution that all legislative powers herein granted shall be used by the Congress of the United States, and that's basically a general term that that um, where the framers intended Congress to seek out information when crafting or reviewing legislation. Um, George Mason himself said, members are not only legislators, but they possess inquisitorial powers. They must meet frequently to inspect the conduct of public office. So over and th- their oversight powers include subpoena and contempt powers. And those, I think, are the major powers that haven't been used enough in the 20th century. When you think about the times that Congress has been most effective inserting itself into foreign policy in the 1920s, in the 1970s, somewhat in the 1980s, it's when Congress has embarked on ambitious investigations into uh, the president's making of war. Right. And, and oftentimes, until recently at least, historians and journalists would criticize those moments. I mean, one of the critiques of the 1920s is of American isolationism and in particular of Congress's uh, excessive efforts to limit presidential power after World War One, with the Nye Committee, for example, uh, which alleged that war profiteers were driving American policy. Even uh, future President Harry Truman was involved with these hearings. You have a different view, right? Uh, on what? On what? And, and you have a different view in the sense that these, you don't see these hearings as as undermining the Constitution and undermining American power. You see them as actually crucial, correct? Absolutely crucial, and you know, um, even even. Even founders who did believe in a strong executive like Hamilton um, still believed that um, uh, it would be utterly improper and unsafe to give the president full control over foreign policy. So the the idea is that the founders wanted to make it difficult to enter war. They wanted to make uh, they were expecting congressional debate to restrain the country from going to war. Why have they not enforced that more then? Why? Why since, as you said, since World War II, have we continually been at war? And why has Congress either done nothing or, as in the current situation, authorized military force in 2001, 2002? That's the current legislation that's used by uh, many presidents to, through this current president. Why have they allowed that to, to go on? Why have they allowed presidents to stretch the legislation or operate without legislation at all? Well, I'd say that the why is, you know, uh, somewhat of a psychological factor of the threat of nuclear war that comes, you know, directly after the with the Cold War, directly after World War Two. The country is afraid. People are afraid that of possible annihilation of possible World War Three. There is a sense that there are, uh, as I said before, too many voices in Congress that that you need one single strong person to push forward. You know, the, the president is tasked with defending the nation and. And one thing that really comes clear in the atomic age is that the nation needs defending. Uh, before that, um, you know, uh, attack on Pearl Harbor is the first major attack in over 100 years. And the um, the idea that the United States has once been, again, vulnerable, that this fortress America no longer exists, the, the, sea from, uh, the, the seas are no longer protecting us because these missiles can be coming, um, it really pushed Congress and the American people – 
into giving the president a lot of leeway in 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 terms of war making powers, in terms of foreign policy, and in what I study in terms of intelligence gathering and intelligence and intelligence work. So the Congress, even liberal members of Congress, were very very. Um, um, uh, were very, very easy or quick to give the president green lights on all sorts of covert operations and um, uh, on on uh, on on assassinations and things like that. It was uh, it, it, to some extent you see Congress putting their heads in the stand and allowing the president to defend the nation in whatever in whatever way is necessary. So in part, it's that members of Congress don't want political responsibility for yes. These. And you know, one thing is that con- you know Congress they. Have have to, especially in the, the House, you know, they're constantly running for re-election, and Congress itself is constantly running for re-election. The president only has to get re-elected once. Congress is hoping to get re-elected again and again and again. And so, for them, their political livelihoods are at stake. And if the country, if a war is popular in the country, uh, and it's not, and it's popular in your district, chances are, as a as a congressperson, you're going to support that. Right. Right. Zachary, you had a question? Yeah. How do we get to the current legislation that we're supposed to be operating under the War Powers Act of 1973? How do we get to that? And how does that how has that contributed and played out in the past two decades? Yeah, really good question. I mean, so, you know, War Powers Act comes uh, at, a, at an amazing time in American history because this act probably could never have been passed at any other time other than in 1973. Nixon is completely on his heels after Watergate. People are f- still fuming over the Vietnam War. Um, Nixon, the, the the Nixon actually. So, and the thing that's most remarkable is that Nixon vetoes the the amendment, and then it's uh, the uh, the act, and then it's overridden. So, from the beginning, this is a, a major departure that that the president is against um, going forward. Some presidents see it as unconstitutional and completely ignore it. Um, so far, there's been little to no impact on decision on the decisions of presidents due to the War Powers Act. It hasn't really restrained them from doing anything. Um, some And as I said, some administrations straight up refused to recognize its in, uh, constitutionality. But in 1975, Ford did submit a report to Congress as a result of his order to send troops to retake the Mayaguez, uh, an operation to rescue some American hostages. Um, he, he, the, he, the troops were recalled within the 60 days, so it didn't actually have an effect. But he did report to Congress if the troops had remained overseas for 60 days, it would have triggered the war power. Powers Act. Uh, in 1979, Carter failed to notify uh, Congress of the operation to rescue the hostages. That's less about the War Powers Act and more about uh, clandestine operation reporting, but it is sort of similar. Uh, in 1981, Reagan sends Marines to Lebanon. Um, when he reported this to Congress, um, and con- and after the Marines were attacked, Congress does authorize the Marines to stay in country for 18 months. So th- that's really the first uh, example of a president stay, uh, uh, adhering to the War Powers Act, or at least stating that uh, reporting to Congress and then accepting Congress's uh, proposal for how to deal with the troops. Uh, at the time, Reagan knew that 18 months was a really long time, and they probably weren't going to be there for that long anyway. He pulled them out in. Much and, less and if time. I remember, he he did report to Congress, but say he said he didn't believe he had an, a constitutional duty. And that would his administration and Bush and 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 uh, uh, Cheney, who gives a a um, dissent to the Iran Contra um, report, would say that uh, all any effort to infringe on the president's war making powers would be unconstitutional. Right, right. Um, in 1990, Bush uh, agreed. Uh, um, 
Bush said that he didn't need congressional authorization to carry out U.N. resolutions uh, in in Iraq, uh, but he did report to Congress and ask for congressional support for operations in the Persian Gulf. Um, Clinton authorized airstrikes in various places pursuant to U.N. Security Council resolutions without regards to the War Powers Act Um which some in Congress uh, objected to. So the, the the history of the War Powers Act is pretty much that it has done nothing so far. Um, the I think that at the time there was a concern. The War Powers Act was almost written to prevent uh, Vietnam from continuing or for, to prevent a continuation of what was going on in Vietnam, of leaving troops overseas uh, for an extended time. Yeah. So, so how have uh, presidents reconciled clandestine operations with the sort of constitutional balance of powers between Congress and the executive? Because, like, particularly in the Reagan years, we see this giant growth of clandestine operations. Yeah. So, and and this, and, this is your book. Yes. Yeah, so the uh, <laughs> the. Um, so presidents don't like the idea of Congress being involved in clandestine operations at all. Starting with, uh, uh, you know, in the early days of the CIA, the the way that Congress and the president would uh, converse on these things would be on in intelligence operations, covert operations would be done in very informal meetings, you know, in the back offices of these guys uh, uh, with smoke in smoke filled rooms and back offices, you know, just lunch meetings, things like that. It wasn't until the well, over drinks, over drinks mostly. Uh, um, it wasn't until the 1970s that Congress really struck out and tried to solidify a way that it would be included in the intelligence process. And so, what that meant was the creation of the intelligence committees that you see in the news now these days: the House uh, uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. This and is the, the committee that Adam Schiff chairs. The yeah. yes, that Adam Schiff chairs, and the counterpart in the Senate, um, the the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, created in the 1970s as a way to check up on uh, presidents who, as I said, did not want to share intelligence with Congress and who did not want Congress involved in that sort of decision-making process. The main way that Congress is, is brought into these, uh, into these decisions is, comes from the reporting requirements that says uh, before any covert action is carried out, the president <laughs> must sign a document called a finding that says that the operation is in furtherance of the the national security. And this document need, before the operation takes place needs to be given to the intelligence committees. And the intelligence committees have no veto power over these over this. The, the president is basically notifying them that he's going to do something. But what it does is it gives the ex- the chance for an exchange of ideas that the, that the uh, committee will hold hearings, closed door, close doors hearings over this, get the uh, insights of their members and, you know, send reports back to the president on what they think of this. You know, if the president says that he's going to, you know, take out a, a general of another country and uh, and Congress says, you know, we're going to be up in arms if you do this, maybe the president then thinks twice. Yeah. So you said, Clay, uh, and I think the consensus among historians would agree that the War Powers Act of 1973 did not really limit presidential war making. Have these reforms of the 1970s, the reforms that include the creation of House and Senate committees, the findings requirement, uh, the executive order that signed uh, after pressure from Congress to prohibit assassinations, uh, signed by Gerald Ford, I believe, yeah. uh, have these efforts by Congress to limit or at least create consultation for covert activities, have they worked? Uh, it's it's hard to say 
definitively. But I think that anecdotally, when you look at the years before um, these agreements were made and the and the subsequent years after, that they did have a big impact. You know, um, the um, the number of clandestine operations actually lowers in, as the years go after the 1970s. There's uh, less efforts to overthrow of uh, other governments through uh, uh, military organized coups. Um, there, for a while, there's no assassinations, and uh, um, you know these things uh, change a little bit. As Zach mentioned in the 1980s, um, with uh, with the Reagan who actually weakens the executive order for against assassinations assassinations in order to um, carry out strikes in Libya against the palace, which are not technically assassinations against Gaddafi, but uh, could definitely be seen as such. Um, So those provisions on assassinations get weakened in the 1980s. And today, those those provisions uh, against assassinations um, have been completely muddied by drone warfare and drone strikes. Um, The taking the uh, strikes against terrorist leaders, um, strikes against specific individuals who are seen as propaganda uh, masters. These sort of things uh, seem somewhat to follow fall under the category of assassination. Right. And certainly a, uh, a sovereign leader of Iran. Someone who's in, someone who's responsible for the military in Iran. Yeah, a, would seem I mean to a be, sovereign leader, yeah. but yeah, I, I think that in this case, you know, someone with a uh, a, a high position in the government, uh, carrying out Iranian foreign policy, I mean, leading this, their military. That's what Qassam Soleimani was. This isn't a, a terrorist group. Right. Uh, this is a legitimately recognized country. Right. Uh, um, so it, it seems to me that that this rises more to a level of an assassination than. Um, <clears throat> Than the taking out of the terrorist leaders, which um, I mean, and think about it in American terms. You know, one of the arguments that they're making is that you know he was a terrorist because he worked with these terrorist groups. Um, you know, but what if it was on the flip side? What if there is a uh, an American working with pro democracy groups in a in a communist country, and that person is taken out? Uh, uh, is that not assassination? Well, back to your discussion of Ronald Reagan. One of the things Reagan did that many people praise him for was support the Mujahideen uh, against the Soviet military in Afghanistan. Uh, The Soviets called the Mujahideen a terrorist organization. We certainly didn't believe that justified their assassinating our president, and thankfully they didn't, (laughs) right? So uh, your point is very well taken. To simply say that a sovereign leader is working with people that we don't think is legitimate doesn't justify assassinations, at least under the 1975 order, it would seem. Yeah, and then, you know, when it comes to the reporting requirements, the, 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 the presidents uh, required to tell Congress about covert actions beforehand, you know, and this was in the 1980s, what sparked the Iran-Contra, is that uh, not only did the president not notify Congress the, about the covert actions, but Congress had already passed laws against these sort of covert actions. And uh, he, the Boland Amendment. The Boland yeah. Amendments right. were completely violated. Um, and so here you see a, a, an executive that doesn't really believe in being restrained by Congress, completely bull- bulldozing over Congress and, you know, isn't in the end held very accountable. 
So I think what your what your scholarship, Clay, and, and this really thoughtful analysis you've given us shows is that um, there's an inherent tension between Congress uh, and the president, and perhaps the founders wanted that. Legal scholars call it an invitation to struggle. An invitation to struggle. And, and maybe there's something productive about that. If that's the case, and here's where we turn to the sort of positive looking forward part of what's so crucial to our discussions each week here on This is Democracy, what are the ways that understanding this uh, 200 years, 240 years of struggle, as you do so well, what are the ways in which that understanding can help inform us going forward? What are what are the opportunities we have going forward from this moment today to have Congress more involved, more effectively, not in preventing presidents from, from defending the country, but helping presidents to do a better job and still protect our democracy in the process? Yeah, I think that, you know, there are, uh, as I mentioned before, certain decades you can look at where this, where this worked. You know, the 1920s being a, a, a really good example where uh, a, a block of progressives in the Senate, especially known as the peace progressives, were able to prevent the country from going down another war path. Now, in, and this is significant because there were efforts uh, by Congress to arrange conventions, to limit the arms races, to outlaw war. These were actual, uh, there were bills made, uh, put forth to outlaw war. There were efforts. Kellogg-Briand Pact, for the, example. Kellogg-Briand Pact. There's efforts to prevent, uh, major efforts in Congress to prevent war. And, you know, then if you look at the 1930s, you know, even though there's problems, of course, with the Nye Commission, this is a real effort by Congress to prevent the president from sucking the country into war. And it's, you know, somewhat successful and, and, until it shouldn't have been. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, and you look at the 1970s and, and and actually starting in the late 1960s. And in fact, that's something I think that it's really important to mention is the uh, Fulbright uh, uh, Vietnam hearings. So holding hearings, the, the 1970s, you know, the, the, the uproar against Vietnam and the War Powers Act didn't just come out of nowhere in the 1970s. It came because of these publicized hearings and because of the Pentagon Papers and because of things like that, where Congress was making doing investigations you know overseeing the executive branch as right. it was as it should be today we have things like uh, we have ridiculous investigations not normal investigations we have Benghazi investigations things that are not really rooted in uh, the restraining of executive power. Here we have recently this expose by the Washington Post about the Afghan these Afghanistan papers about what really had been going on in Afghanistan. Yet there's no effort to have congressional hearings to look into this. There, what what Congress needs to do is they need to hold hearings. They need to use their subpoena power. They need to use the power of contempt when people won't meet the subpoenas, and you know have public debates over these things. So, so how how do they do that when you have a, a president now, and uh, he might not be the last president to do this, who says, uh, I'm, I'm not going to follow. Uh, I'm not going to do, you know, Washington said he wouldn't turn over the negotiation papers yeah. with, with the British. I'm not going to let people in my office. And even when someone like my former national security advisor, John Bolton, says he's, he's willing to testify, I'm going to invoke executive privilege. What should Congress do? I think they have to keep going hard. They have to keep go the investigations going. They're, you know, if, they, if, the, if the president wants to block people from uh, testifying, let him block them, find someone else. You know, it, it looks bad for the president to block people. Continue 
continue putting him in, put, continue to put the president in that position. You know, continue to make it seem that there's no transparency. If you continually investigate someone who's who's not giving you anything, it becomes clear that they're hiding something. What about the use of the power of the purse? One of the things we, where we started this conversation yes. and where I'd like us to, to sort of come to a conclusion is, is around the role Congress has clearly in the Constitution as the place that appropriates the money. Yes. And so how can Congress more effectively make sure that it has control over money? We have fought wars since 9-11 actually off budget, yeah. where we go to war without actually money even being appropriated by Congress, and then the president assumes that Congress will then follow on and appropriate yeah, and, and a lot of this has to do with those uh, the uh, authorizations of force from uh, the early 2000s that, right. uh, the, that the president points to and says, the, the, um, this, is, this allows us to do this, and you'll have to give us the money. Right. You know, uh, Johnson made a similar argument during the Vietnam War where he said, you guys keep giving us the money. If, if you wanted the war to end, you could just stop giving us the money. Right. The appropriations thing is issue is is difficult because, as I said before, you have troops in the field. You have people who need this money. I think that what con- the only thing that Congress can really do is plan ahead with uh, scheduled decreases. The, the idea that Congress is going to tell the president that you're going to get this much money uh, for the next year's budget for this war, and then the next year it's going to be less. And there has to be some sort of agreement of where the trend is going. Otherwise, uh, the president is going to keep doing what he wants and say and ask Congress to pay for it later. And if Congress doesn't pay for it, they're the ones who look bad. But Congress could also pass legislation saying money shall not be used for fighting a war in Iran or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is the kind of thing that they should be doing now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Zachary, uh, for a long time, uh, Americans have not really liked paying attention to Congress. Most Americans don't like Congress. Uh, very low approval. Very rating. low approval ratings. I think uh, almost lower than dentists in, in some and respect. And Trump even. And, and lower than the president, right? And uh, Americans tend to vote for their incumbent con- congressional representatives to go back to office, but still say they hate Congress. They don't pay attention. And it's not sexy to read about Congress in the way it is to read about the executive. Do you think, uh, Zachary, that um, young people will start to pay more attention to these issues? Yeah, I really think that um, that especially in a, in, in a moment where, um, where we're very dissatisfied with the trend that our politics are taking, I think Americans are, are paying much, much closer attention uh, to what goes on in Congress and what goes on in this um, amazing legislative body. I think also it's really important uh, to remember that, that dissent uh, in Congress and in other forms is really important, that we need to have these discussions and have these debates. I mean, even wars that we look on, um, that, that history looks unfavorably, they were very vehement debates. I mean, going back all the way to World War One and Bob La Follette in the Senate, I think it's really important to remember that these sort of debates, these public forums to discuss um, our country's role abroad are very important. I think that's something that younger people and all Americans are paying much closer attention to. Today. I think that's very well said. Certainly, I think we've been educated in the last 20 to 30 years uh, on the importance of having debates over the use of war power. I think one of the points Clay made so well is that during the Cold War, there was a premium placed on acting fast and delegating authority because of the concerns that if we acted too slow, uh, we would be the subject of a nuclear attack or of some sort of communist expansion. And then after September 11th, concerns about terrorist activity and the need for an executive to act quickly there. I think we've learned in the last 20 to 30 years, Democrats 
and Republicans in our society, uh, that we need more debate around these issues. And I think that's that's such a strong and important moment for our democracy because it reminds people that we need branches of government like Congress to be standing up and offering serious debates. And, and part of what you're talking about, Clay, it seems to me, is that these investigations offer a forum for a public discussion Absolutely. of American policy. And, that, and you nailed it, Zach, that, that you know, what we should really have going on right now is public discussions about, about policies. Policies that are set forth should have hearings, they should have public hearings, they should be all discussed in the open for people to hear. And you know, Congress is the people's representatives. They're the closest representatives to the people. You know, the, so they really are our voices. And you, know, you mentioned that we keep voting in the incumbents and you know, people who maybe are getting further away from our voices Voices. You know, in the 1970s, after Watergate, an, a new class of legislators were elected. The new young class of le- and major changes were made in the 1970s. Human rights was incorporated into American foreign policy. Major restraints were put against covert action. You know, uh, huge secrets came out that the government had been trying to keep from people. So it can happen if we if people get together and they elect the right people in Congress. If there is a new class ready to go, there could be major changes. You know, it, it, presidents come and go, but, you know, a new class of, and it's very difficult to steer the, sh- the ship, but a new class in Congress can actually have a pretty significant impact in just a few years. Well, and we have seen that happen uh, in 2018. Yes. The, 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 the change, whether one approves of it or not, uh, is quite significant. Uh, and what we've seen with the House of Representatives is a completely different approach to uh, efforts at holding the president accountable, whether yeah. one agrees with it or not. And uh, one can expect that 2020, the 2020 election, might produce another class of members of Congress like those in the 1970s, like the 2018 class, that will be very intent on investigating and discussing policies surrounding a variety of American foreign and domestic uh, issues. And that, more than anything else, is why citizens need to pay attention and elect members of Congress, vote and elect members of Congress who care about these issues. Less about whether they're from your party or not, and more about whether they have the requisite knowledge, integrity, and commitment to address these issues, as as Clay and Zachary have laid them out so well. I think today we've learned uh, so much about the role of Congress and how crucial Congress is to questions of war and peace in our society. Clay, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Thank you, guys. And Zachary, thank you for your, uh, as always, uh, stunning poem and your your budding beatnik. He is, Zachary, he's a a budding beatnik in the 21st century. It's uh, so much fun. And thank you all for joining us on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.